Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the audio cast version of the Salisbury Pediatric Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this week we are going to look at issues number 44 and 46, and those issues correspond with information on emulsifiers and emulsifier science, as well as information on fluoride and tooth decay. So let's get into the beginning of this part. So there were a couple questions that were asked in the last newsletter that I'm going to give you the results from. Do you actively work on changing your perceptions around perceived negatives? 91% of the people that responded said, yes, they do. That's really good to know because controlling what you can control in life is very important toward mental sanity and mental health. And then I asked the question, have you read the book Green Lights, the book about obstacles and understandings? And 7% said yes, and I'll highly recommend everyone uh, pick that book up. It's a very, very interesting read. Uh, in the podcast space, there have been some recent lecture discussions with Dr. Kirstie Agard from Baylor University School of Medicine around the maternal microbiome and health, as well as Dr. Tracy Shafazada from the University of California, Davis, and her company uh, it, that produces a product probiotic called Evolve for Babies. Uh, there's some really interesting information there if you're interested. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about emulsifiers. What do we know? The Food and Drug Administration says that there are thousands of ingredients used to make foods. The Food and Drug Administration also maintains a list of over these 3,000 ingredients in its database. They call it everything added to food in the United States, many of which we use at home every day, including sugar, baking soda, salt, vanilla, yeast, spice, and extracts. Um, but we're going to look specifically at something called emulsifiers. So let's define what an emulsifier is. An emulsifier is, by definition, molecules or chemicals that help maintain a food's even texture, even mixture, of two or more non-mixable foods such as oil and water. The scientific definition for emulsifiers goes as stated. Food emulsifiers are created by alcohol lysis or direct esterification of edible fatty acids taken from animal or vegetable sources with polyols, i.e. glycerol, propylene, glycol, or sorbitol. Further processing by reaction with ethylene oxide or esterification with organic acids produces a wide range of emulsifiers with differing properties. The most commonly used emulsifiers include MDGs, sterile lactylates, sorbitol, or sorbitan esters, polyglycerol esters, sucrose esters, and lecithin. Emulsifiers are a common food additive, additive by the United States food industry with a design purpose to increase the smooth texture and palatability of processed foods. They have been in use for a long time and come in natural and synthetic versions. In one study, it was found that 58% of the calories consumed by 9,317 people in a study population, they noted that they consumed ultra-processed food, which included many emulsifiers, in 58% of their calories. That was noted by Martinez Steele in 2020. That's a lot of calories from a modified food source. Well, that's only a problem if it's unhealthy. Let's look some more. I noted that this number, this 58%, tends to mirror on the low end what I see in clinic. 
we tend to see children eating predominantly processed-based food sources, somewhere as up to 80-90% when they're polled about their last six meals. Processed foods tend to make up the majority of the foods that these children's parents consume, which is why the, be the behavior follows downstream, downhill. When we think of processed foods and emulsifiers, think of peanut butter as an example. Natural peanut butter separates and has an oil layer on top, whereas the modern commercial brands never separate. The emulsifiers hold the peanut butter in place. Take Jif for an example. It contains hydrogenated oils as an emulsifier, as these oils maintain its consistency at room temperature. However, these oils are well known to be unhealthy in volume. High volumes of free fatty acids can drive the mechanisms involved in insulin resistance, whereby diacylglycerol elevations drive muscle-based glucose transporter, otherwise known as GLUT4 translocation dysfunction. This is inherently negative to long-term health. Typically used emulsifiers are lecithins, or E322s, based on the FDA designations, mono- and diglycerides of fatty acids, or E471, lactic acid esters of mono- and diglycerides of fatty acids, E472b, and polyglycerol esters of fatty acids at E475. Emulsifiers provide stability and improve the spreadability of various spreads, including peanut butter, again, being the main reason why they are ubiquitous in our food. We like them. They taste good. They look good. They tend to um, make everyone think the product is better. I mean, again, take the peanut butter example. When we started using natural peanut butter, our kids wondered why they looked so weird with the oil on top. You had to mix it. It was harder. When they took out you know, one of the other peanut butters, they were like, this stuff is beautiful and perfect. So there's a reason behind the why. And again, if it's unhealthy, that's a problem. If it's not, then it's really not an issue. So, as always, with the advancement of food technology comes a benefit and a potentially a cost. The benefit's clear, as just stated, mouthfeel palatability, which encourages sales and consumption, which is great for corporate bottom line and human taste preferences. The cost is unstudied in humans to a known degree. Thus, it is considered by the FDA as generally recognized as safe. However, we have animal translational models that are of concern. In a nature study by Dr. Chasang, C-H-A-S-S-A-I-N-G, and colleagues, we see a, a data set raising a legitimate concern regarding synthetic emulsifiers. Let's take a look at the title. Dietary emulsifiers impact the mouse gut microbiota, promoting colitis and metabolic syndrome. Reading the abstract will help us see the mechanism that could underlie the human risk. Quote, the intestinal tract is inhabited by a large and diverse community of microbes, collectively referred to as the gut microbiota. While the gut microbiota provides important benefits to its host, especially in metabolism and human development, disturbance of the microbiota-host relationship is associated with numerous chronic inflammatory diseases, including inflammatory bowel disease and the group of obesity-associated diseases collectively referred to as metabolic syndrome. A primary means by which the intestine is protected from its microbiota is via multi-layered mucus structures that cover the intestinal surface, thereby allowing the vast majority of gut bacteria to be kept at a safe distance from epithelial cells that line the intestine. Thus, agents that disrupt mucus bacterial interactions might have the potential to promote diseases associated with gut inflammation. Consequently, it has been hypothesized that emulsifiers, detergent-like molecules that are ubiquitous component of processed foods and that can increase bacterial translocation across epithelia in vitro, 
might be promoting the increase in inflammatory bowel disease observed since the mid-20th century. Here we report that in mice, relatively low concentrations of two commonly used emulsifiers named carboxymethylcellulose and polysorbate 80 induced low-grade inflammation and obesity metabolic syndrome types in wild-type hosts and promoted robust colitis in mice predisposed to this disorder. Emulsifier-induced metabolic syndrome was associated with microbiota enrichment, altered species composition, and increased pro-inflammatory potential. Use of germ-free mice and fecal transplants indicating that such changes in microbiota were necessary and sufficient for both low-grade inflammation and metabolic syndrome. These results support the emerging concept that perturbed host microbiota interactions resulting in low-grade inflammation can promote adiposity and its associated metabolic effects. Moreover, they suggest that the broad use of emulsifying agents might be contributing to an increased societal incidence of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and other chronic inflammatory diseases, end quote. So let's break this down. This is an animal model study that gives us a mechanistic risk in mammals that could be driving part of the human issues with rising rates of metabolic syndrome and inflammatory bowel diseases. The loss of a protective mucus layer is a critical real step in intestinal cellular damage and then progression to a leaky gut and food immune interactions that promote intestinal inflammation and human disease. To me, this is only a piece of the web of risk and disease. The fatty acids and the chemical emulsifiers are a part of a complex process of intestinal immune dysregulation that leads to a myriad of inflammatory disease states, including poor responses to viral infections like COVID, as Dr. Fasano's work has associated. This study and others discussed are not proof of cause and effect in humans so much as they are mechanisms of possible risk if we consume newer, technologically altered processed foods. Okay, so let's now look at the limited human data. In a study from Frontiers in Microbiology, a good, a really good journal, by Dr. Elman and colleagues, we see 20 human subject microbiomes tested against the use of emulsifiers. They looked at the effects of five different emulsifiers. They looked at glycerol monoacetate, glycerol monosterate, glycerol monoleate, propylene glycol monosterate, and sodium sterol lactulate. These are called SSL on fecal microbiota in vitro. SSL significantly reduced concentrations of butyrate and increased concentrations of propionate compared to control cultures. The presence of SSL increased lipopolysaccharide, otherwise known as LPS, and flagellin in cultured communities, thereby enhancing the pro-inflammatory potential of SSL-selected bacterial communities. That comes from Elman et al. 2020. This study is small, but shows a strong change in the metabonome and quality of microbes present at the human's gut after exposure to these emulsifiers. These changes are noted to be associated with increased inflammation of the GI tract. Lipopolysaccharide, LPS, is a bacterial cell wall byproduct that is uber-stimulating in a negative way to the immune system when chronically exposed and can lead to a state that Patrice Kani calls low-level endotoxemia. Essentially, over time, you are slowly degrading the mucus lining and exposing the intestinal cells to bacteria and their byproducts, which stimulates local inflammation, leading to many different immune-mediated diseases 
including autoimmune and allergic types. There are big projects underway to answer this question. Quote, Emerging in vitro and animal evidence suggests that food additives such as emulsifiers may contribute to gut and metabolic disease development through alterations to the gut microbiota, intestinal mucus layer, increased bacterial translocation-associated inflammatory response. The MECNUT emulsifier project aims to further explore the mechanistic basis for these relationships across a wide range of permitted dietary emulsifiers and dietary agents in vitro. As part of this work... The FDA diet study aims to determine the impact of soy lecithin on gut and metabolic health in vivo using a controlled dietary intervention. This growing area of nutritional science may lead to innovative knowledge which could pave new ways of addressing gut and metabolic health via implementing dietary guidelines directed at food additives. This comes to us from Halmos, H-A-L-M-O-S et al. 2019. So at this point, we have mechanistic belief thought process, but no clear understanding. We have some studies that are of interest, but they're not solid proof yet. So we're left with an unknown. You as a consumer must choose a path forward based on the data that exists and not just blind faith in regulatory agencies that may or may not be doing their job. In an upcoming podcast, I speak with Dr. Lindsay Albenberg regarding gut immune health, and she discusses this topic and many others that are worthy of your time. Stay tuned. For me, it's pretty simple. Eat all natural wherever possible. I'm not a big fan of anything synthesized. Continuing on this theme briefly, we noted that the Environmental Working Group has been looking at the safety data regarding chemical-based emulsifiers and common household products. So emulsifiers are being used not just in food, but in household products that you may may be exposed to. So there's more areas to think about emulsifiers in your environment and where they could be affecting you. There is a link on the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter website for this issue to the Environmental Working Group to look at this data a little bit further. So now let's switch gears and move over to fluoride. You know, one of the easiest things in life to understand is prevention. It is always easier to prevent tooth decay than to treat and repair damaged teeth. Dental hygiene remains the best way um, to have quality teeth until death. So let's look a little bit at fluoride. So what do we know about the state of fluoride need in humans? Do we need it for adequate health mineralization of your teeth? And can we do well without it? Fluoride is a form of the element fluorine on the periodic table of elements. It is found naturally in rock that over time leaches into water as the primary source of our exposure. Let us look at the deficiency state. Quote, in humans, the only clear effect of inadequate fluorine intake is an increased risk of dental caries, tooth decay, for individuals of all ages. Epidemiological investigations of patterns of water consumption and the prevalence of dental caries across various use regions with different fluoride water patterns, excuse me, with different water fluoride concentrations, led to the development of a recommended op optimum range of fluoride concentration of 0.7 to 1.2 milligrams per liter, or parts per million. The lower concentration was recommended for warmer climates where water consumption is higher, and the higher concentration was recommended for colder, colder climates. 
Recently, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recommended that all community water systems adjust the fluoride concentration to 0.7 milligrams per liter, as more recent data do not show a convincing relationship between fluid intake and ambient air temperature. This recommendation was made in an effort to reduce the risk of dental fluorosis and in light of the widespread availability of fluoride from other sources, including fluoride-containing oral care products. A number of studies conducted prior to the introduction of fluoride-containing toothpaste demonstrated that the prevalence of dental caries was 40 to 60% lower in communities with optimal fluoride in their water concentration-based than in communities with low water fluoride concentrations. That all comes from the Linus Pauling website. So when I think that humans living in a natural world would have evolved to obtain fluoride that is readily attainable, i.e. in the water or food naturally, if it was profoundly necessary or essential for all of us. Otherwise, we would have evolved to not need it through some biochemical mechanism. Thus, it makes me wonder if the fluoride need is now an artificial human construct to compensate for our lifestyle choices that affect tooth enamelization i.e. the excess, excess consumption of sugar. It's just my hypothesis. It's sort of like the need for statins to prevent diet-induced heart disease. How does fluoride work to prevent caries? Fluoride acidifies the oral cavity through the formation of hydrogen fluoride bonds, which enter the bacterial cytoplasm, which inhibits bacterial metabolism by inhibiting vital bacterial enzymes. The hydrogen fluoride lowers the local pH, making bacteria consume more energy to maintain a balanced acid-base status, thus leaving less resources for replication and growth. Their inefficiency in growing thus allows for less consumption of sugars that we consume, causing the reduction in bacterial acid production that directly damages tooth enamel. That comes from AOUN et al. 2018. The bacteria that allow it to thrive on the tooth and gingiva in the absence of quality oral food consumption and or fluoride will form a biofilm that is dynamic and capable of producing copious amounts of carbohydrate metabolized acid that slowly degrades the tooth enamel over time. The big issue with fluoride remains the two-tiered problem of risk and need. If a child is allowed to consume large volumes of sugar-based beverages, including milk, as well as sugar-based foods, then fluoride topically, and a paste form, the need will climb. Conversely, a child that has none of these antecedent risk carries promoters is unlikely to have significant need for fluoride. Fluorinated water has significantly less appeal for me now that children are receiving frequent dental fluoride varnish applications at our office and also the dentist as they age. As a population health-based initiative, topical fluoride application appears to be the best decision moving forward by reducing any risk of toxic ingestion and chronic exposure via water that is very hard to control intake quantity. This thought is not in line with the current recommendations for fluoride uh, water fluoridination. However, we have not been applying fluoride topically to a child's oral cavity for decades, thus making dynamic change in thought based on this current change in events. Fluoride appears to be very safe, unless young children use fluorinated toothpaste and swallow the contents either directly or while brushing. The other issues come when drinking water has excess levels of fluoride in it, which is very rare, or when people overconsume fluorinated water. Most industrialized world does not put fluoride in the water system, and some are removing excess levels where naturally found. The U.S. has fluoride in over 50% of the municipal water systems. If you have a well, levels of 0.7 milligrams per liter associated with good tooth health. 
If you have levels above four milligrams per liter, multiple times the normal, it behooves you to install a water filter capable of removing the fluoride back down to tolerable levels. However, getting back to my earlier statement about evolution, it makes dramatically more sense to me that direct fluoride applications to the tooth for those that abuse their teeth via excess carbohydrate consumption, especially while young, should be our policy. It's highly likely that all kids should receive this therapy, although I am unconvinced that most healthy eaters and drinkers need it. Gross fluoridination of all water sources is less sensical to me as we evolve to provide better medical care for the marginalized Americans among us. For more on dental care, um, see the newsletter from a couple months ago that's in the link in the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter website. Moving on to what are the scientific mechanisms for caries development. The mechanisms of fluoride oral action suggested by ULLAH ULA et al. include the following, reduction and demineralization of sound enamel by inhibiting microbial growth and metabolism, enhancement of the remineralization and the recovery of demineralized enamel, and the formation of a fluoroapatite mineral phase that provides more resistance to demineralization and acid dissolution following acid production by bacteria. Inhibition of enzymes such as reduction of immunoglobulin A protease synthesis, reduction in extracellular polysaccharide production, which helps in decreasing bacterial adherence to dental heart tissues. As fluoride concentrates in dental plaque, it inhibits the process by which karyogenic bacteria metabolize carbohydrates to produce acid and ad- adhesive polysaccharides. That comes to us from uh, Aeon's Prevention uh, in Nutrition and Food Sciences. So finally, section three, fluoride toxicity. More than 80% of the fluoride toxicity is seen in children before the age of six years old due to ingestion of fluoride-contained toothpaste or mouthwashes. It is rare in adults in the developing world. Acute toxicity is characterized by nonspecific gastrointestinal disturbances such as pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. In severe cases, this may progress to renal and cardiac dysfunction and coma and ultimate death. This has, uh, in my mind, never been something that I've ever seen or heard of. Most of the fluorinosis that we see is very mild and associated with uh, the white spots on the teeth. That's called dental fluorosis. It's a cosmetic disorder where the teeth become that mottled appearance. Nothing major. Um, the, the significant issues with fluoride, as stated, that were severe, uh, only really truly can happen if somebody's consuming large, large amounts. Um, so this is really not something major to worry about, but the fluorosis of the teeth definitely is something that we see. So with that being said, you know, fluoride clearly has a place in the American health ecosystem, I think it is definitely more likely to be necessary if you allow your kids to abuse their teeth. And that happens via, via a mechanism of sugar constantly being exposed to the teeth, tooth surface, allowing the bacteria to ferment and produce acid. So I think if we limit the volume of sugar kids consume, they eat a healthy diet, the need for fluoride becomes very low, and you'll get some at the dentist's office um, and in the pediatrician's office. But the whole fluoride in the systemic water um, availability system really doesn't make a lot of sense to me anymore based on what we know. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, audio cast of those two newsletters, uh, 44 and 46. Uh, Emulsifiers of fluoride were two topics that were actually brought to me to cover. So 
Uh, I appreciate folks coming with ideas of what they want to learn about um, as well. I always enjoy it because I learn more for myself as well. So with that being said, I hope you have a great day and uh, remember to hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician and or healthcare professional. And it's not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. And it does not constitute the formation of provider-patient relationship. All right. Have a great day.